Hey friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Weekly Dose of Euphoria podcast. My name is Matt Sapala, and I am your host. A little bit of my backstory, guys. I am a qualified personal trainer and currently studying a Bachelor of Health Science, majoring in Nutritional Medicine. Through this show, I aim to educate and empower you guys to make healthful, sustainable changes to your life. I don't want this platform and my practice to be your quick fix. I want it to be your only fix. In saying that, I'm stoked to be able to bring you this week's incredible guest, the natural nutritionist, Steph Lowe. Steph is an absolute wealth of knowledge and an extremely influential individual. Steph, I'm not sure that you know this yet, but you were one of the very first people to inspire me to dive deep into the realm of nutrition, and in particular, real food. I've listened to a ton and a half of your podcasts, and now to record an episode for my platform was extremely humbling and something I'm so grateful for. Today's episode is extremely thought-provoking, especially listening to Steph's perspective on the current global pandemic and how there is an underlying issue that we're not really speaking about, and that is the chronic disease pandemic. What we know out of the top 10 leading causes of death, that there is a large percentage that is preventable. And what we also know about the COVID-19 virus is that the most vulnerable people are the elderly and people with underlying health conditions. So Steph takes us through a step-by-step process explaining why taking control of our own health has never been so important. We also discuss in depth the gut microbiome and its role in disease treatment and prevention. I think Steph summarizes this topic extremely well as we could have chatted for days on end about it. It was extremely interesting listening to Steph's perspective on omega-3 fatty acids and how important they are, as well as how parts of our current Western lifestyle have completely disregarded the importance and inclusions of these products. This one is an absolute goodie, guys, so grab your pens and paper because you're going to need it. As usual, guys, if you're listening to this podcast, please let Steph and I know by screenshotting the cover and adding it to your preferred social media platform, tagging both at The Natural Nutritionist and at Euphoria Health. Well, that's enough from me. I shall see you on the other side. Steph Lowe, welcome to the Weekly Dose of Euphoria podcast. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So good to have you on. I know we've just been battling some technical difficulties for the past 10 minutes. It wouldn't be a podcast without him. Hey, we we're both in separate chat rooms <laughs> waiting for each other. Both thinking we stood each other up on the show, but we're here now. Mm. That's amazing. <laughs> of course, for sure. Now, Steph, you're up to some incredible things, particularly in the holistic health and wellness space and, and encouraging people and educating people on how to take a more holistic approach um, to their lifestyle. I'd love to get into all of that a bit later on in the podcast. But before we do, talk to us a little bit about your background and what was life like for Steph Lowe growing up? Mm, this is a big story, but I've spoken about it enough times to have sort of created the elevator um, pitch version of it. But um, essentially, you know, I developed an interest in health and nutrition as a teenager. Now, initially, this was because I had a mission to lose weight. And 
um, back then, certainly the information that we were provided with was very food pyramid orientated, which of course was all about, you know, low fat eating and calorie counting, especially in the weight loss space. So that's what I did. And I had this mission to achieve this goal weight because internally I was suffering from quite a degree of unhappiness that I had convinced myself would be solved if I was to lose the weight. Now, of course, when I got to that goal weight, I had quite the epiphany because I was still really unhappy and it, you know, made it pretty clear that there was more going on and, and more I needed to explore. You know, I moved away from where I grew up in Townsville, partly to try and run away from some of these demons, but mostly because the health space and the nutrition space was about 10 years ahead at the time. And I knew that was where I wanted to be. But what was quite interesting is early in the piece, now I probably would have been about 21 at the time, I met someone who encouraged me to to go gluten-free. This is once he knew my story and, you know, my sadness and some of the health challenges I was having. So this is over 15 years ago now, as I disclose my age, but as we can all imagine, 15 years ago, nobody really even knew what gluten was. It certainly wasn't an accessible style of eating to be eating gluten-free. You know, cafes weren't offering the GF on the menu. There wasn't the awareness that we have around real food in the space now. So I didn't know anything about it. You know, I was working as a Pilates instructor at the time. This is pre TNN pre the natural nutritionist, but because I was so desperate to feel better and to essentially resolve my unhappiness, I was really, really, really willing to give it a try. Now for me personally, it was night and day, you know, it was such a huge contrast in how I felt that it really was the catalyst for me to uncover the healing power of whole food. You know, it might've started as gluten-free, but it quickly, um, developed into a whole food lifestyle, which of course allowed me to cut out a lot of the low fat refined foods that I was surviving on because they were low calorie up until that point in time. And because I felt so different, I immediately became really inspired to find out how I was going to teach other people what I had experienced firsthand. And I knew from that moment that I wanted to be a nutritionist but I knew I was also going to have some challenges because once your eyes are open to the real food movement, you really do understand that what we've been told for 40 or 50 years is quite upside down. So I had to commit to doing this degree to become a nutritionist, even though I knew that I was going to have to quote unquote, learn some fallacies, you know, I'm a pretty stubborn kind of person. So I went back to uni in 2009 and did my postgraduate degree in nutrition spent two years working for someone else while I started my own company. And my first baby, the natural nutritionist was born in 2011 and the rest is history. Absolutely love that journey, Steph. And you touched on it before, like the access to information now is just so, so incredible in terms of, you know, you can access your whole um, nutritional information that you would particularly get with in a consultation with a nutritionist online, which is both has its benefits and you mm. know the negative connotations to it. But I really, really love that approach. And, and I'm very much similar to you. I, my, um, 
you know, catalyst for finding out more about nutrition and, and being interested in health and wellness came from a weight loss approach as well. And it's only started to sort of refine uh, over the last three or four years into a whole food approach and, and really nourishing your body as sort of like the main forefront. Beautiful. Love that. Now, everyone in Victoria at the moment is going through a very, very difficult time with stage four restrictions just being announced yesterday, which is, you know, quite the battle for families and individuals that live on their own. And, and I understand the media is giving a lot of attention to COVID-19, which, you know, is a serious virus. But I think the real um, issue that I'd really love to discuss with you, Steph, is the pandemic that's been going on for decades now, and that's chronic disease. And I think something that is quite alarming to um, to know that to- out of the top 10 leading causes of death, potentially over 60% of them are preventable through lifestyle. Can you touch on a little bit about, you know, what this means to you in terms of preventable chronic disease and how you base your consultations and everything that you do through the natural nutritionists around that? Yeah, well, I completely agree with you. What we need to realise is some of these diseases that exist, which include obesity, insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, like these didn't exist before our food pyramid and before our Western guidelines have quite tragically led us in the wrong direction. And, you know, I've worked in this space for a long time, especially because I practice, you know, the overarching real food approach which is significantly lower carbohydrate and higher in healthy fats in the food pyramid, um, we naturally end up helping a lot of these people because awareness is spreading that a, as you said, these diseases, excuse me, these diseases are lifestyle created and a lot of them could have been completely avoided. Now, the reason why essentially is because our Western food is really high in refined carbohydrates. And not only are these very nutrient poor, so causing a whole host of nutrient deficiencies and the associated health issues, but they just completely turn our physiology into a sugar burning and very inflammatory environment. So we know that sugar is inflammatory by itself. Then of course, when we are eating too much sugar and gaining weight, well, that increases inflammation because of the excess fat cells. And then of course, we start to develop this intolerance to carbohydrates, which becomes insulin resistance, which becomes pre-diabetes, which becomes type two diabetes. And essentially, if we look back at the way we've eaten and the guidelines we've been given, um, they're to blame quite truthfully. Now, if we just take a pause for a moment to look at what's going on with COVID, you know, I, I, I don't want anyone to die. So let me get that out of the way. It's tragic that over 200 um, Victorians alone have died. But what we're forgetting is that in Australia alone, there are 10,000 deaths per year from essentially that collection of conditions like insulin resistance and type two diabetes. That's 10,000 people every year. Yet we're not having this conversation. We don't see it in mainstream media. And all we see is information and advice about hand washing and masks. Now I'm not saying that's not important. So please don't like anyone listening, misinterpret me, 
But the question is, what if part of our public policy to manage COVID included looking at our food guidelines and the fact that two out of three Australians are overweight or obese? You know, we know that people that are obese, that are insulin resistant and or that are hypertensive, so high blood pressure, they are about 12 times more likely to die of COVID and about six times more likely to be hospitalized. Like that's massive. So the silver lining, I hope, is that COVID will expose how wrong our dietary guidelines have been. We can only hope. I just wish that it was a conversation that had been started earlier because we actually could have saved many lives. Yeah, I think you're raising some really, really important points there, Steph. And to touch on, you know, the hyper-focus that the media outlets are placing on COVID. And don't get me wrong, also, it is a really, really serious virus. And, you know, those things that they're putting in place have been proven to work. But I also definitely agree with you that there is not enough airtime on nourishing your immune system and preventing these things from, you know, hitting in the first place. And our bodies are such incredible beings and they adapt to the environment that we put them in, whether we feed them, you know, fruits and vegetables and nourish, or we, you know, put um, refined foods into our diet, they adapt and they evolve with those sort of conditions. For the listeners at home, Steph, can you give us a little bit of an explanation about why that occurs? Yeah, I actually, I do really want to explore that, but just to take a step back, um, because a lot of people are ignoring this conversation or some are saying it's too late, which I really disagree with. If we look at someone who's had type two diabetes, so they've, they haven't got there overnight, it's been a development of this disease over a number of years or longer. We have research to show that that can be completely reversed in about four weeks. Now that's a month, right? Then we have someone who might either be pre-diabetic or even just showing signs of insulin resistance overweight, um, we can start to make some really positive changes to their physiology in seven days. So it's not too late. And, you know, there's a whole nother side to this story about how health practitioners, including me, are starting to get silenced around, you know, encouraging people to look after their immune system and to not bake too much sourdough and to not develop sugar habits in ISO. And, you know, wh why isn't this being discussed? Like, you, as you said, we're really adaptable. Like our, we've essentially got two tanks in the body, right? And so if we eat a lot of refined carbs, a lot of sugar, we'll be running this petrol tank, which is very inflammatory, as I mentioned, and it causes a whole host of health problems long-term. If we move to a real food template, then we can access our diesel tank, which is that fat burning environment, which is naturally anti-inflammatory, not to mention that you just feel so much better. You have greater blood sugar control, clarity, you know, day to day. It's, it's quite night and day in how you feel. And, and we can move between those two tanks really quickly, like quite, quite literally four days. And so we are really adaptable. So I actually believe that potentially in Victoria, um, you know, we, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be at stage four if we had been having this conversation earlier because we know that most of the deaths, aside from the elderly, which is another conversation due to their increased risk, 
nearly every other death is highly associated with one of these comorbidities like the obesity, like the high blood pressure and the cardiovascular disease. So here we are in stage four with many lives being lost for mental health conditions and suicide and many businesses being destroyed. And the rhetorical question is, could this have been avoided if we were talking about a real food template as well as hand washing back on day one? I certainly love that, Steph, and I couldn't agree more. And, and we spoke about, you know, inflammation in that little segment there. And I really think that's an important topic to discuss. And so inflammation is making your body more susceptible to chronic disease. And I guess as a general consensus in the population, we're walking around in a state of inflammation. What parts of our lifestyle, Steph, do you think are com contributing to the pro-inflammatory lifestyle that we lead? Well, I think... For most of us, it started with the incorrect advice because everyone has been told to eat their 6 to 12 or 7 to 11 whole grains, uh, serves of whole grains per day. So, of course, it does start with food. But you're right. There's many other reasons why we suffer that inflammation because if we think about a couple of concepts in the West – we have had this huge focus on low fat eating and we've also been encouraging vegetable oil consumption like canola oil, which is like my least, in, least favorite ingredient on the planet. And what we've been doing is consuming this really high intake of pro-inflammatory omega-6 oils like canola, like grapeseed, like rapeseed, Back in the day, it used to be like, you know, cottonseed and, and corn oil. They're not so prevalent now. But if we, if we don't have enough omega-3 from things like olives, olive oil, nuts, seeds, avocado, plus or minus lots of omega-6 intake, then we are creating a pro-inflammatory environment. You know, the ideal ratio is one-to-one. Yet in the West, we might have ratios of 1 to 15. So we're consuming 15 times more omega-6. And this is a real issue because these canola oils are cheap. They have been celebrated because they've been heart healthy, which is probably the biggest myth of the last five decades. And, and we can go there, but they're in everything. You know, I'm constantly posting on social media about ingredients that contain canola oil. And I'm like blowing up the interwebs because people are realizing that, that their favorite ingredient contains canola oil because it's everywhere. So we have to educate ourselves on what causes inflammation. So the two big ones we've touched on so far are sugar and those refined seed oils. And we need to stop believing what marketers are putting on the front of a label of a packet that we're purchasing and we have to turn that thing over and learn how to read an ingredient label because there's this concept called greenwashing, which is because of the lack of regulations in countries like Australia, there can be any sort of claim on the packet, you know, terms, terms like heart healthy or plant-based or whatever it might be that is so popular these days can hide the truth that when we turn over the packet, it's horrific. It's not real food. It's like an experiment created in a lab. So we have to start to 
firstly buy less packets because then it's far less of an issue, right? If we buy natural whole foods, but certainly when we are shopping and relying on some of these um, packet or foods in jars that we get really savvy and that we stop believing what we've been told by an industry that has never had our health as their priority. Really, really great point there, Steph. And I spoke about this last week with Ali McLean about how to read labels and, and the marketing that mm. goes behind um, putting, you know, keywords and hot topics on the front of a packaging that, and then you turn it over and there's literally 5% of quinoa. We spoke about quinoa chips for an example, and the quinoa <laughs> was down the bottom 5% of the quinoa. So how I can know, they shocking. label like that? And I guess it's a completely separate market. It, it goes towards the marketing avenue as opposed to a whole food, health food approach. Now we touched on oil before, Steph. I'm really, really mm. keen to dive into this. And, and I guess we often are known to guzzle oil in our pan when we're cooking things. And I guess first and foremost, before we dive down this rabbit hole, how much oil do we actually need when we're cooking something? Oh, <laughs> I mean, not very much if you're using the right pan. <laughs> I I hate pans that stick, right? I would much prefer to buy really high quality um, eco non-stick pans and then not have to worry about, um, not that I'm afraid of oils, but it's more about the quality of the end result. So I don't actually think we need a lot, but I actually think the more important point is to understand when we should be using certain oils because the other reason that canola is celebrated is because it, um, if, you know, they, they propose, <laughs> they propose that it can be used for high heat. And I would disagree with that because essentially what we need to understand is that oils are very different based on their structure. So we spoke about omega-3s before, and they're um, an example of an unsaturated fat. And if we think about what that concept unsaturated means, well, it's essentially that they're really um, loosely bound and therefore easily impacted by things like light and heat. So a lot of people cook with olive oil on the fry pan, not knowing that they're completely denaturing that oil and making it become more like an omega-6, more pro-inflammatory. This is further complicated because we've demonized saturated fats for the last five decades. So almost everyone has been told to fear ingredients like coconut oil because the myth is that it will give you heart disease, which has been disproven in the literature, but is taking a long time to um, change what we've always thought to be true. Now, coconut oil is a saturated fat, which doesn't change its structure under high temperatures. So it is actually perfect to cook with. And we need to understand this. Um, and it is a conversation that, you know, I do feel like I have to repeat quite a lot, but I continue to do so because almost every day I talk to a client that doesn't know this. So it's information that's really important to understand because it does also break down a lot of these myths that we can see interwoven through the food space and the nutrition space. Yeah, really good point that you raised, Steph. And I guess another alternative approach, like you mentioned before, is getting a nonstick pan that you don't actually require mm. as much oil or oven baking, sandwich pressing, all those other alternative approaches that require you to use less oil um, in the meantime. Mm -hmm. 
And in, you touched on the bad sources of oil and the good sources of oil before, Steph. Can you elaborate on those a little bit further for the listeners at home? Some good sources of oil that they should be incorporating in their lifestyle every single day and then, or not every single day, but more often than the bad sources of oil like canola oil that we spoke about before. Yeah, so our priority does need to be omega-3s. Like that's for everybody. Um, so these are our natural anti-inflammatory fats and a couple of examples that, I mean, I think olive oil is is one of the best. It's obviously plant-based, um, but there are other, other options for variety. You know, it could be a macadamia oil, um, it could be a hazelnut oil. The the, the list is, is almost endless, but olive oil is certainly the most popular and, and probably the most well, well known. Um, I think that, that omega-3s though, um, they're not always found in oils, things like nuts and seeds and nut butters and avocados and olives, as I mentioned, should be should be found in every meal. So we have great blood sugar control and hormonal regulation and craving management. Um, and then the omega-6s are certainly like, I will not touch canola oil. Um, other examples are certainly most sunflower oils because they're they're not cold pressed. They're actually expeller pressed. And there's a solvent that goes in the process to get oil out of sunflower seeds. Like think about how small sunflower seeds are, right? So Steph, I'll just stop the, you there. For the listeners at home, can you explain the difference between cold pressed and expeller pressed? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So when it's expeller pressed, it's using like significant technology because as you can imagine, if you look at how big or how small a sunflower seed is and then how think about how many sunflower seeds that might take to create a bottle of sunflower oil, well, expeller, pressure, expeller pressing is the mechanical process that extracts the oil from the raw material. So it's under high pressure so that we can fast track the, this process and a solvent is added to speed up that process. This is a chemical that is known to be very toxic and potentially carcinogenic. So adding even more complication and more negative health um, connotations to an already pro-inflammatory ingredient versus cold press, which is done naturally. Like obviously back in the day, it would have been done a little bit more um, naturally even further, but now we use, uh, they're called hydraulic presses. So they extract the oils in this case from the seeds without the need for adding things like solvents, as I mentioned. So certainly a, a greater um, health benefit, but more expensive. So we're just really going to see it in the oil space, unfortunately. I love that point. I think it's a really valid point for people to see when they see those adjectives on, on the front of the oil um, jar. So to know what cold pressed means. Steph, for the listeners at home, can you explain the role that fibre plays in our lifestyle and why it is so important? Yeah, so I mean, the the concept, I guess the reason why fibre is being celebrated more recently is certainly because of that, the gut health conversation, the microbiome space, which I do want to talk about more because it certainly has a big role when we look at our immune system and, and COVID and uh, of course the pandemic. But to answer your question, what we know 
when we eat a diet high in fiber? I mean, first and foremost is we're getting a nutrient dense diet. So that's obviously what we want, right? We eat food for enjoyment and pleasure, but ultimately for nutrients. And when we're eating adequate dietary fiber, it creates this beautiful ecosystem in our microbiome. So to explain that for a moment, we are a human host to trillions of bacteria that live all the way from our mouth to the other end, but mostly reside in our large intestine. So that's usually what's referred to as the microbiome. The trillions of bacteria that live in our gut, that digest our food, that produce um, really important neurotransmitters like serotonin, that regulate the balance between inflammation and an anti-inflammatory environment. So fiber is really important because it feeds those microbes that are really beneficial to health and especially the microbes that produce short chain fatty acids. So the most celebrated short chain fatty acid is butyrate and it should be celebrated because it's a really, really important metabolite that keeps our gut in balance. It keeps the integrity of the gut in place. So to avoid conditions like increased intestinal permeability, otherwise known as leaky gut, um, it has a huge role in releasing serotonin, which we know is important for mood being our happy hormone. But serotonin is also a hormone that's essential for motility to make sure that we're eliminating waste and moving our bowels one to two times per day. And fiber is king here, right? So if a diet is too low in fiber and or too high in protein, especially our Western choices of protein, then it creates a lot of inflammation. In the clinic at the Natural Nutritionist, we do a lot of microbiome testing. Now, the research is rapidly evolving, but we see a lot of inflammatory metabolites like um, hexalipopolysaccharide or trimethylamine. And they, these are metabolites that are often created by the microbes when we're not eating enough fiber. So it really does come back to looking at the plants, the nuts, the seeds, the whole grains that you're eating. Yeah, definitely. And it's only started to be really um, researched in the past decade, hasn't it? And it's gaining a lot of momentum and it's rapidly changing, as you mentioned, because there's just so much to know about the gut and the microbiome and how it responds to different environments that it's placed in. Yeah, for sure. It's a fascinating space. And I think it is important to, to keep an open mind because we're actually learning that what we once thought is actually not quite the case because we've now got the technology to go deeper and understand the genetics. So the most common technology that's being used now is called metagenomic sequencing. So we're no longer relying on, you know, taking these stool samples and growing them in a Petri dish, which isn't the same environment as our gut. We're actually looking at the genetics of the, of the species live in the gut and we've uncovered like i think last year there might have been something like 600 new species discovered in a year like it's epic it's evolving really rapidly and we should keep an open mind um to like also to say up to date with that research but such a fascinating space and certainly where we're at now is proving the significant role that food has because if we go back to talk about immunity well where is 
80% of our immune system in the immune cells that line the gut. So we have to be looking at whole food right now more than ever, because if you're eating a lot of sugar or a lot of vegetable oils, well, you'll be suppressing your immune system. And that's another reason why we're seeing these um, increased cases of COVID, especially in people that look healthy. You know, we've all seen on the news, these young people used as this kind of almost poster child to quote unquote prove that it's not just the elderly that are catching COVID. But in most cases, if we dive into what these young people are eating, it's not whole food and it's not a plant-based lifestyle. It's actually quite inflammatory. So they're incorrectly being labeled as, you know, a young person that's caught COVID, but they're just equally as unhealthy as the majority of people who have unfortunately caught this virus. Yeah, some really, really great points there. And I was listening to a podcast the other day with uh, Dr. Will Bolshewitz, I hope I pronounced that right, who is a gastroenterologist. And he was talking about and a really interesting statistic that there is more st- there's more bacteria in your gut than there is stars in the sky. And that's just incredible. Mm. And to try and comprehend that into research is just a whole different story. And I guess following on from that, Steph, you touched on before about how, you know, our bodies react to the different environment that they're placed in. And you mentioned a few of the bacteria that produce based on what environment they're in. How does the microbiome respond differently to the environment that we feed it? If we're giving our body a whole food sort of approach, as opposed to a processed food approach. Yeah. Well, I think it, it can be summarized as simple as whether it's going to create this beautiful anti-inflammatory environment or not, but there's a whole host of things that can you know, happen as a result of that, right? So if, for example, I mean, if we take a step back, we have to acknowledge things like stress and exposure to antibiotics. It's not just foods that influence our microbiome, but certainly if we're not eating the right sort of food, if we're not managing our stress levels, if we've had a strong level of exposure to antibiotics and we've not done a lot about it, then what happens is, a concept called dysbiosis. And what that means is instead of having lots of beneficial microbes that produce all these really important anti-inflammatory metabolites, we start to see an overgrowth of other other microbes. So that might be a yeast called candida, which a lot of people are familiar with. We're also identifying a couple of other um, bacterial overgrowths. The new kid on the block is bilophilia wadsworthia and that's proving to be quite inflammatory and i'm seeing it a lot in these stool tests that i'm doing with my clients what also happens is if the metabolites are then being produced and they're inflammatory and that starts to impair the gut wall so we always use this analogy that the gut wall should be like a fly screen teeny tiny holes that protect the gut and it stops, you know, undigested food particles leaking out, pathogens leaking in. But when we're eating the wrong thing, when we're stressed, when we take too many antibiotics, we actually see holes in the fly screen. Or what it really is internally is the tight junctions in the gut start to separate. And that is what is called leaky gut. Now, people criticize this term, but it's actually well proven in the literature. It's known, as I mentioned it earlier, increased intestinal permeability. And that's why a lot of people are really sick. But it's also 
in the sort of beginning stages, why a lot of people have food intolerances. You know, have you have you met someone that doesn't have a food intolerance? A lot of it is to do with the way our food is made these days, but a big part of it is the dysbiosis in the gut and the permeability. So we start to react to one food and a lot of people end up reacting to all but three foods. And it's actually not about pulling out the foods long-term, it's about healing that internal environment, which of course, real food, stress management, avoiding antibiotics, unless absolutely necessary, avoiding all pharmaceuticals, unless absolutely necessary, is a huge part of that process. Yeah, I really think that's a great point that you raised, Steph. And going deeper into the dysbiosis realm, what physiological effects happen when you are, you know, in a state of dysbiosis with the gut? It really depends on the individual. So we know the effects can be systemic. You know, some that I've mentioned so far, like the food intolerances, and certainly conditions like irritable bowel syndrome, constipation, diarrhea, bloating, they're quite obvious, right? Because they're related to the gut. So we can, in our minds, quite easily make the link between these symptoms and our stomach. So they're the obvious ones, but not everyone experiences those typical digestive um, symptoms. For some people, it can be mental health conditions. So let's explore why. We know the gut is connected to the brain via the nerve, the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is this like super information highway where our brain literally communicates to our gut and our gut literally communicates to our brain. So if we have inflammatory metabolites in our biome, they can travel up the vagus nerve, cross the blood brain barrier and cause inflammation in the brain, which is the new proposed cause of depression. For a long time, we've thought depression was all to do with serotonin and all to do with this neurochemical imbalance in the brain. That is being debunked as we speak. And that's why we're really starting to look at the gut health to support conditions, mental health conditions like depression and more we will see in time. For some people, it's not that severe. It could be a skin rash. You know, our skin is our largest organ. So our external environment, like our skin biome, because we have a microbiome of on our skin, there's microbes that live on our skin, that reflects our internal environment. So things like acne or psoriasis are now being treated by looking at the gut. There are, you know, there's more to the picture often, but it certainly has to be a part of the treatment intervention. I work with a lot of athletes and they have like inflammatory injuries all the time. You know, knees that don't resolve. We see elite athletes retiring early because of chronic injuries and inflammation can start in the gut. So there's not really a condition that we shouldn't look at considering the 2000 year old saying all disease starts in the gut, right? We have to be looking at that for any symptom. It's not always linked, but it certainly shouldn't be ignored. I really love that, Steph. And I think a holistic approach is gaining a lot of momentum and a lot of physicians are starting to um, look at disease and treat and prevent disease through a holistic lens. And I really think it's an exciting space to be in at the moment. Now, Steph, we mentioned gluten before. I'm, I'm really excited to get into the whole topic of gluten and how the body responds to it and based on the manufacturing process. But for the listeners at home, can we strip it right back to the beginning and talk about gluten? What is it? Yes. Good question. <laughs> Where do we begin? <laughs> yeah. 
So gluten is actually the protein that's found in cereal grains. So examples that we know about are like some of the wheat species. So whether that's spelt or barley or rye um, and it in, in those wheat species contains the protein gluten. And I think the reason why it started to be a, a huge conversation in the health space, in the health space is kind of twofold, right? So firstly, we have to understand that the gluten that we find in our wheat bread and even the wheat to start is no longer the wheat that we had access to either when we were young or our great grandparents were run were young rather. And it's also in the West, very different to what you might go or what you might eat when you do some international travel, if you ever can again, <laughs> because we create crops and to make them resistant to climate and to bugs and to allow them to grow all year round and to eliminate weeds, we not only turn these grains into a completely different genetic structure to once to they once were, but we also spray them with Roundup. So the DNA is different, which means our DNA isn't suited. So we often don't tolerate that food that's had a significantly high degree of human interference, but then it's sprayed with Roundup, which is glyphosate, which is probably the worst invention. I mean, it's hard to pick. There are many, but there's a real issue with glyphosate because it completely disrupts our biome. So glyphosate is a, a trademarked or a repatented antibiotic. We're spraying all our food. We're spraying our um, primary school yards, our nature strips. Like it's not just our food, it's everywhere. And there are cases going on in the U S and some coming in Australia about the, the lymphoma, the development of lymphoma uh, cancer in those that have been exposed to Roundup for many years. And so it's starting with farmers and caretakers and people that have been literally spraying these chemicals, but we're all exposed to it. Unless we eat 100% organic and know that our food is not sprayed, even then we can't guarantee that we're not consuming glyphosate because it's in our waterways and it's in our air. It's, it's awful. It will be banned in time. We're seeing countries now um, like um, I believe it was Mexico has committed to a countrywide ban of glyphosate in the next five years or so. The details have just escaped me, but it's a huge issue. Not only are we reacting to this protein, but the, those foods are heavily sprayed. The second part is we've got huge research that gluten is actually releasing something called zonulin. And if we go back to what I was talking about before, the gut, this fly screen um, concept, we know that zonulin is going to cause those holes in the fly screen in the, in the fly screen or the tight junctions to start to get leaky. This has been proven by a well-known researcher, Dr. Fasano. And when we eat gluten and we trigger the release of zonulin, we cause the permeability in the 
intestinal barrier function and it creates that inflammation that we've been talking about. So it's, it's bad for a lot of us. And I'm not saying that everyone needs to avoid gluten, but you do need to look at your overall intake because it's a bit of a game of Russian roulette. It's like, you know, I don't think it's a case of um, if, but when. Yeah, some really, really great and interesting topics that are, you know, getting a lot of airtime at the moment. I guess it's a really great time to start growing your own vegetables in your own backyard. That way mm. you can continually monitor um, what is going onto your crops. We spoke about gluten. It's a, it's a whole topic in itself, and I feel like we could chat for an hour on this <laughs> this further. But just to summarize it a little bit, for the listeners at home, Steph, what is the body's response to gluten for a person that doesn't have an intolerance? And then what sort of effects can a person with an intolerance sort of see? Yeah, so if you ask Dr. Fasano, who's done this, the most amount of research on gluten than anyone, his stance is that no human completely digests gluten. So there'll be plenty of people that will dispute that because they think they feel okay on gluten, but you don't really know unless you come off it. And so for my clients, if we've got any, any question mark around that, we would always do a 30 day trial because you, you have to come off gluten to understand if it's impacting you, especially because I mentioned some of the side effects or symptoms rather are systemic. They're not always digestive, which are much more easy to relate to a specific food that you've eaten. So for some people though, like it, it, it might not cause anything in the short term, especially if they have a really healthy gut and that's the key, right? If you've got a really healthy gut and there's no dysbiosis, there's no permeability, there's no inflammatory metabolites, you've got high diversity, lots of beneficial microbes, then you are probably one of the people that could tolerate gluten as long as you never overdid it. But it's really, it's hard to meet that many people that have great guts these days because of our food, because of our stress levels and because of our antibiotic exposure, which is also in our waterway, by the way. So then there's a condition called non-celiac gluten sensitivity, where it's not an autoimmune condition, but you are significantly reacting to gluten and it causes the inflammation and the leaky gut. And then of course we've got celiac disease, which is literally a lifelong condition where you cannot consume gluten or you suffer a whole host of issues, which in some people might be digestive, other is skin rashes, some it's anaphylactic, but you really can't tolerate gluten at all. You even have to go and buy new toasters and, and new chopping boards and go to gluten-free restaurants or literally not eat out, especially if you're super sensitive to gluten. So it's, it's, it's a spectrum, certainly. Um, I think the real point though is it's not whole food. Like I said to you, it's now created in a lab. Wheat is not what we once thought it was and it's not what our great-grandparents consumed. It's been a highly commodity it's a high commodity now. So they've found a way to grow it cheaply. They've found a way to make it, as I said, crop resistant and um, bug resistant and climate resistant. And we just don't have the ability to tolerate it anymore because it has a really high degree of human interference. And any food that has a high degree of human interference also has a low degree of nutrient density. The relationship is always inverse. 
So, you know, it's hard. We all like bread. I get it. But we have to remember we really eat to get nutrients. So why are we eating food that's got a high degree of human interference? Probably because we're a little bit lazy or we don't allocate enough time to our food. That's why we return to cheap carbs. That's why we end up eating wheat and gluten. So we have to get back in the kitchen, but we also have to make food a priority. It can't be a last thought or a last resort. It has to be that important that we allocate time in our week to it. And then we can either grow our own veggies or shop organic or go to the farmer's market when we don't have a global pandemic. And then we can eat really well and feed our families really well. If we stop being so convenient based, then a lot of these foods, a lot of these problems go away. Yeah, couldn't agree more there, Steph. I really, really love that point that um, we are in control of, of the decisions that we make in terms of our lifestyle and we should be allocating more time to focus on nourishing your body from that point of view. And we, you said it before, we use food as, food as fuel and it nourishes our body. So why aren't we looking at that lens more often as opposed to just like, oh, I've forgotten to eat today or, mm. or you know what, like, what am I going to eat today? It should be at the beginning of your day and preparation should be um, high in that aspect. The reality is, Steph, that majority of the population, it's not f- physically possible for them in their lifestyle unless they make changes to take a whole foods only approach. So for the people at home, in this field, what are the things to look out for on the back of the packaging when they say that they're gluten-free? I know that sometimes gluten is replaced with a lot of starches and, and things that we spoke about before, but what are some sort of tips in that realm? Don't buy it. (laughs) (laughs) Because if it's a gluten-free product, yeah, you're right. It's just got another ingredient in there that's equally as refined. And that is a blessing and a curse because, you know, it's made the conversation so strong and such a household conversation, but it's become a huge industry. So you go to the commercial supermarkets and there's whole aisles dedicated to gluten-free, but they're not nutrient dense foods. If we focus on whole foods, we're about 99% gluten-free anyway, because we're eating fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds. And maybe we have a little bit of rice or buckwheat or quinoa, but these are all gluten-free pseudo grains anyway. And there are so many options that mean that we're not eating gluten anyway. The vast majority of gluten is in these refined carbohydrates. So the answer is to significantly reduce, if not eliminate refined carbs. Like that is how we be gluten-free. Certainly reading labels is important, as I mentioned, but I don't think just substituting gluten-free for gluten products is the answer. It's often worse. Now we spoke about nutrient density before, and, and I guess that can be a whole foreign realm for many people out there, especially with their specific hyper-focus on counting calories at the moment. I'm, I'm I think calorie counting serves a great purpose in terms of understanding how much calories is in a tablespoon of peanut butter, for example, before we go and load four tablespoons of peanut butter on there. But for the listeners at home, can you explain the difference between nutrient density and, you know, counting calories? Mm. (laughs) So the focus should be eating the food that has the highest level of nutrients, right? And this includes, you know, micronutrients, amino acids. It is the per 
per weight or per volume has the greatest number of beneficial nutrients. So it's always going to be a whole food that has the lowest degree of human interference, right? So more nutrients per calorie in this food. The issue with counting calories is that fats have always been demonized because they're more than double the calorie per gram of a carbohydrate or of a protein. When we look at one gram of a carbohydrate, it's four calories. One gram of a protein, four calories. But one gram of a fat is nine calories. So fats have de been demonized because they're higher in calories. But the truth is they're, they're some of the most nutrient dense foods, especially when we're preferencing omega-3s. And so if we only calorie count, and certainly if we try to eat low calorie, we'll be naturally convinced that carbs and proteins are better because they're lower in calorie. But if we eat low fat, we'll have a whole host of health issues. You know, certainly our hormones are built on fats. Our brain is mostly fat. So just two things off the top is if we eat low fat, we'll get imbalanced hormones, which for men can be low libido, low testosterone, fatigue, women, it's PMS, amenorrhea, a whole host of fertility issues that come with that. And this is actually, it could be largely prevented by eating the right fats. Our brain is mostly fat. So what do we see coming off the back of a low fat error? Alzheimer's dementia. It's not a coincidence that these two conditions are significantly exponential in a generation that were told to eliminate all their fats. They have literally eliminated all of the building blocks for their brain, then been prescribed statin drugs, which pops their cholesterol on the floor. Another really important component of brain of the brain. And we're seeing these other avoidable lifestyle diseases. So we can't be too focused on calories at the expense of healthy fats. But I do agree with you. We need to know how much we're eating because fats are so nutrient dense and calorie dense. They are easy to overeat. So we have to just keep a, a general eye on things, but it's not 1200 calories for, for a start. Um, it certainly needs to be very individual and we have to stop demonizing fats. They're a really, really important part of our plate. Yeah, definitely agree there. And I, I guess that main topic, that main point that you spoke about there, Steph, is that it's very individualized and each human requires a different energy balance to, you know, thrive. So I really think that just because you've, someone has read that 1200 calories is optimal for them doesn't necessarily mean that it's optimal for you. Yeah, I know, right? And that's the challenge that we've got. We mentioned earlier about getting all of our information online like we would get from a consult. Well, the one thing that's missing is the personalization, right? So you get information from Google or Instagram or whoever you follow on YouTube, but what it's completely missing is the human element. And that's why I think I'll always have a job. Like a nutritionist is really not, I don't know, I might be proven wrong, but I doubt that's going to be taken over by AI because we need to have this personalized approach to make sure we're looking at the full picture because calories and macros are a small part of health. 
And I think too often, especially with movements like the ridiculous, if it fits your macros movement, we just lose sight of that big picture and we lose sight of food quality, which is the last thing we want to do because food quality and nutrient density is or are some of the most important things. I guess in a generation that's really hyper-focused on weight loss and striving for a specific body image, the if it fits your macros sort of approach and counting calories is very, very popular, but at what expense is the real question that we really mm. need to ask. Now, we spoke about nutrient density before. I really, really am keen to talk about nutrient absorption because that's a completely different realm that we could chat for hours about as well, Steph. But, you know, you hear specific foods in combination with each other can boost your nutrient absorption. Can you explain a little bit about that for the listeners at home? Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of that, I think there's some really great advice around how we can optimize the absorption of certain ingredients. Um, When we look at iron, we know that for some people, there's a real issue with the gut absorption. And that can be due to, you know, dysbiosis and some of those concepts we discussed earlier. Um, And certainly we know that we need vitamin C to help the transport of the iron. So that's just one example where they're a perfect match to help maximum absorption. But really the absorption, I think, is more important to acknowledge the role of the microbiome. Like one of the sayings that I often think of is we are what we eat, but we are what we digest and absorb. So a lot of people spend the focus on food quality, which I think I've made pretty clear that I love, but they forget to look at the role of the gut. And we need to understand that the function of our gut determines how much we're getting out of our food. So to make sure that we're not only buying and chewing great food, but able to get the macronutrients, micronutrients, antioxidants, amino acids out of this food. So that's why it is going to be about focusing on your gastrointestinal health. So, you know, of course, real food is a big part of that, as we've discussed, but for some, other, for some people, um, what they're not looking at is actually food behaviours. Like one of the other myths in the health space is acid and people demonise acid and they sell bullshit alkaline water. Sorry, if I, I can swear on this show, you might have to edit me. But, um, <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, okay. The stomach <laughs> is supposed to be acidic. Like it's really important the stomach is acidic. It needs to have the right pH so that we can break down our food, especially our protein. But even before that, we need to be chewing our food so that we can break down our food, especially our carbohydrates. Like we forget about the role of each step of the, of the gastrointestinal tract. You know, this concept of mindful eating is not hippie. It's really important to literally look at your food. So if we start from the very top, Seeing your food is the stimulus to release bile from your gallbladder, to release enzymes from your pancreas. Then you put the food in your mouth and you chew it 20 times per mouthful, which releases a lot of amylase, our carbohydrate digestive enzyme. From the mouth to the stomach is quite quick. So that's in a matter of minutes. We need the acid to break down the food. Like, All of these steps are really important so that by the time the food gets to the small intestine, it's small enough to be able to absorb. 
if we breathe in our food and don't chew it, like a lot of people do in the West because we're scrolling or driving or answering emails, the food will get to the small intestine and it will be too large to digest. So that's where we start to see bloating or, as I said earlier, some of those more typical IBS symptoms. So we actually have to look at our food behaviors quite closely. And I can't tell you how many times people's digestive issues, such as bloating, has actually been completely resolved by changing their food behaviors. You know, no probiotics, no fermented foods, not even microbiome testing, like nothing other than teaching them about the role of chewing our food and taking time to eat when we're not in a stressed, scrolling, sympathetic, dominant state. It's massive. Really, really, really think that's it amazing point guys and if you don't take anything out of this podcast but that that is a golden nugget of information really focus on absorbing your nutrients and and celebrate eating i think you know we we don't celebrate it quite enough it's such a blessing we get to eat we get to have food on our plates you know there's parts of the world that don't even get to eat so we really need to Mm. start celebrating and allocating time for those sorts of things and and you spoke about all the physiological um benefits that that has internally so let's start celebrating that and that starts from you Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like we spend so much time being in this sympathetic state, this fight or flight state. And if we try and eat in that state, we won't digest our food because digestion occurs when the parasympathetic nervous system is the predominant state. So we have to be looking at these techniques. Um, And certainly for anyone that does experience bloating or has been diagnosed with IBS and hasn't looked at this, like it's a game changer. So absolutely so important to acknowledge. Love it, Steph. And I guess as we're finding out rapidly that there is just so much to know about the human body and it's not as simple as looking at one body system because they all work intangibly. And I really think that, you know, there's, it's an exciting space to be in the health and wellness space in the next decade because it's just going to grow so much as knowledge and more science starts to um, hit the service. Would you agree? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it, I think we'll look back on conversations like this and giggle, like, because we'll just think that what we knew was surface level once again. So that's what's so exciting. And um, it's only going to get more exponential because it's technology that's driven a lot of this. So the technology will expand like the stats on the microbiome testing that we do in the clinic now that costs $349 would have been millions of dollars only 10 years ago. So imagine, hopefully we can get the stool testing on Medicare and make it really affordable for everyone. Like that's the next step so that we're able to acknowledge how important this is um, and make sure that people aren't missing out because of a financial limitation. Yeah, absolutely love it, Steph. And coming to the end of the podcast now, I really, really appreciate your time and, and, you know, picking your brain. You're an absolute wealth of knowledge and I just have thoroughly enjoyed, you know, learning as well as leading this conversation. So thank you first and foremost, Steph. Now, before we take it any further, I'd love to know what your main message is and why you get out of bed each and every day. Mm. My goodness. Put you on the spot here. No, you haven't because... (laughs) Because it, for so long, like literally for, what year is it? <laughs> like, for, yeah, I know, right? So for like over 10 years, my mission has been to teach the world to eat real food. 
And I think I've done a really incredible job at doing that. But like I've had this epiphany since I've become a mother, I think that we've got to do more than this. Like it's going to be so off track, but there are billionaires hoarding money that could totally get rid of poverty. You know, there's unimaginable things going on in the world that have been hidden from us because of the way mainstream media is set up. And I've got this more new mission to help elevate humanity in, in a different way. So it is going to start with meditation. So we can come back to that sort of baseline awareness, but I have so much more I want to say and do. And I've more recently created a platform under Steph Lowe and I have a website that will be launching stephlow.com very soon. And um, I guess watch this space because I'm a woman on a mission. It's going to be more than real food. <laughs> You're spreading a uh, very vital message from a real food point of view, but now expanding into that area, which I think is a conversation that needs to be had and it's gaining a lot more momentum um, mm. in the, you know, in the current climate with access to information and technology and things like that. So yeah, I love that. Watch this space. Now, Steph, <laughs> you spoke about your future plans. So you took out, took the next question out of my mouth. Where can people contact you? And before we wrap it up, I guess it's really important to talk a little bit about the natural nutritionist and, mm. and what you're doing in that space. Yeah. So the natural nutritionist is our, at the moment, virtual clinic. We do have a clinic in Sandringham um, here in Victoria that's currently closed due to COVID. We're seeing lots of clients online and um what's been the silver lining in COVID actually is the increase in this interest in our health like we've never been busier which is just so incredible that people are taking this opportunity to get healthy you know side note it probably shouldn't have taken a global pandemic but it's happening which I think is incredible um, and so we're running the natural nutritionist all virtual at the moment. Um, for anyone that wants to chat to myself or Ellie, you're welcome to book a complimentary 15 minute consult online. And I'll share the link with you, Matthew, so that you can pop that in the show notes, because we'd love to chat to you about your health goals and next steps. Um, I have a podcast, which is health, happiness, and humankind more recently rebranded from the real food reel. We release episodes each Thursday. That's on iTunes and Spotify. If you guys want to check it out, um, I most often hang out on Instagram, although I've been shadow banned at the moment from, for saying too many things that I'm not allowed to say. <laughs> so I'm not on there at the moment, but by the time this episode airs, I'll probably be back on there. Um, come and hang out at the naturalnutritionist.com.au. There's heaps of resources, articles, recipes, so much to, to dig in and take a deep dive into nutrition and more. You're definitely dominating the health and wellness space and it's only growing from here. You mentioned your podcast. It's incredible. I used to listen to it back when it was called The Real Food Real. So it's amazing to see it, you know, expand into health, happiness and humankind. What episode are you up to at the moment? 289. Wow. A powerhouse mm. of information and some incredible guests along the way. Yeah, I can't right. believe I started in 2014, actually. I look back and I think, oh, my goodness, what a journey. Of flies <laughs> when you're having fun and kicking goals, hey? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Steph, thank you so much for your time today. I've really, really enjoyed the episode of Picking Your Brain. Yeah, awesome. So great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Well, guys, what did you think about that one? I absolutely loved it. And I'd really love to know your feedback as well. So let me know what you thought of the episode. I'd love to spark some 
thought-provoking intellectual conversations about this issue that we're currently facing. And if you're looking for a place to start, please either contact Steph or myself. We'd love to help you on your journey and start helping you thrive in the skin that you are in. If you're wanting to support the show, guys, you can head over to the podcast app and leave a review. It only takes a few minutes and it means the world to me. Have a great week, guys, and I'll see you next time.